For a long time, I thought John Stainer had messed that up completely. You listen to uh, the crucifixion from which that part comes. And I thought for a long time, that verse, which is without doubt one of the most well-known verses in the New Testament, needed to be the kind of hallelujah chorus uh, of the crucifixion. Uh, but uh, I've come over nearly 65 years to sort of revise that opinion and that slow, not ponderous, but solemn reflective statement, which is the heart of the faith. And what I'm going to talk about this morning uh, is just the right mood and tone. Because uh, Jesus and Nicodemus and the conversation between them and then that, that verse, John 3:16 on every other wayside pulpit that you've ever seen as you've gone into the countryside is one of the most famous stories, one of the most famous conversations in the scriptures. We've even got it on our banners. Uh, What else is there new to say about it? Well, do you need anything new to say about it? It's the lectionary passage for today, the second Sunday in Lent. Uh, And so I thought I wouldn't duck out. Somebody said to me the other day, you're going to fall off your perch in a few weeks' time now. <clears throat> and when you first came, you alluded to the fact that your own being born again experience happened when you were a teenager. And every time you mention it, you keep saying to us, I'll tell you about that some other time. When are you going to tell us? So I thought I'd tell you today. Is that all right? Yes. I was 17. I'd given up going to church at about the age of 10, like you do at Sunday school. And uh, I was in a nightclub in the center of the universe in Bradford in West Yorkshire, just off Foster Square. Uh, I think her name was Jackie, but if it was, then bless her, she was probably, we were probably three weeks into one of my regular four or five week dalliances. And there we were, and it was two o'clock in the morning, it's Friday the 12th, 10th or 11th, depending on when you go over midnight uh, of September. And we were sat there <clears throat> and suddenly this chap came next to us at this table and it was quite gloomy and the music was quite loud. And he said, do you mind if I ask you a few questions? And I thought that he was somebody from the establishment, you know, do you come here often? Do you think the beer is too expensive? You know, I can imagine whatever it was. And instead, I said, no, 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 sit down. He said, do you believe in God? I thought, this has got nothing whatsoever to do with whether the music's too loud. And so I heard myself sort of saying, well, yeah, I think I do. Do you believe in the devil? Well, I'm not sure I do. Do you know that Jesus Christ died for your sins? And I know now, I didn't know the word then, but I know now he was an evangelist. And he clearly used this kind of nightclub in Bradford in the early hours of the morning to do a piece of evangelism. And he was going to unsuspecting couples and people like me uh, and asking these questions in a way of just testifying. And he gave me a tract. I can't say that I actually thought much of the conversation except for the fact I remember it because of what came after it. I think if nothing much had happened after it, I'd have forgotten it very quickly. But uh, Jackie and I uh, left shortly after that. I dropped her off home. I probably arrived home about four o'clock in the morning. And then as you do when you're 17 and a bit, you get up at sort of 
but early, you know, half past 11, Saturday morning. And uh, I'd done something really, really unusual, in fact, completely and utterly unique for me. And that is when I'd got back in the early hours of the morning, I'd sat on the side of the bed. And before sort of casting myself underneath the covers, I'd said something like this. God, I've heard a lot of funny things about you tonight. But if you are there, will you somehow let me know? And I went, slept like a baby. I mean, you do when you're 17, don't you? I could be facetious and say when I got up in the following morning, I knew that God didn't answer prayer. I'll tell you why. My brother was still alive. <laughs> still pestering me. But something had changed. And I went downstairs for, well, it would be brunch really by the time I got up. And my mother was bustling around in the kitchen. And I felt because she was the Christian in our family, I, I, I thought I'd tell her. And she listened and she said, you need to go and talk to my minister, who I'd never met. So I uh, got on my scooter. I was a scooter boy in those days, you know, lamps. Remember? Lambretta scooters, lamps up the side, scarf, helmet. And I went down and just called on the minister, probably about lunchtime on a Saturday, and he was mowing the lawn in the grass. And I said, uh, hello, you don't know me, but I'm Marianne Atkins' son. And uh, she sent me down here because something funny happened last night. And bless him, I mean, I know now as a 40-year minister what it's like to have somebody completely out of the blue just emerge on a Saturday lunchtime when you're mowing the lawn and you're having a day off and suddenly say, hello, can you talk? I'm sure when he walked in he thought, Phew. But he sat me down and he listened to the story and then he said this to me. Young man, because I was once, this is 1972. Young man, the greatest challenge and opportunity that you've had in your life was given you last night. And you've now got to decide what you do with that challenge. And I want you, he said, to come on Wednesday when we have a little Bible study group and we'll come to that group and we'll talk. And my Christian life began. Uh, and it's had its ups and downs, but that's how it started. And I guess in classical terms, most people would say that I was born again on that day. That was the conversion experience. Now that's one way. When we think of conversion, what we really ought to think of is something spiritual that resembles the kind of Colosseum. It's got multiple entrances from north and south and east and west. And therefore you can walk in through many a different door from many a different direction. But when you get in, there you are. And you, if we had chance to talk about it, you could probably talk, some of you, about very different but nevertheless real and authentic relationships, which were the first time that you can remember when effectively you were serious about the Christian faith. And still others of you will be sitting there this morning saying, 
Well, I wish I'd have had some kind of relation, uh, uh, an occasion like that, some kind of experience like that, because actually, I can't remember anything much at all. I was raised in a Christian family. I wasn't much of a rebel. I probably did one or two things when I went off to college, but I've always belonged to the church. And sometimes I wish I had that kind of seminal St. Paul Damascus Road experience so I could look back to it and say, then. And your experience is just as valid as mine or anybody else's because it's not where, it's not the way that it happens, it's that it does happen. And that there comes a time where you stand at the end of however long a process and you say basically, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back, though of course we know we're forever slightly turning back and then going forward again. It's like, and I've used this, ex, uh, uh, this example before, it's, it's like when I remember being taken with my <clears throat> younger brother, who incidentally is still alive, um, being taken to my auntie's in Queensbury in Bradford, and we always used to uh, have the day there with their children, and then we were all put in the bath, sort of together, or one after one, and then dressed in our pyjamas, and our dressing gowns were put on and slippers and then if it was raining my dad used to pick us up and put us into the back of the car and put the little seat belts round us and we'd chat for a while and then you'd fall asleep so you knew that you got in the car in Queensbury and the next morning you woke up in Otley in West Yorkshire in your bed And you couldn't for the life in you remember getting from there to there. But as sure as eggs is eggs, when you woke up, you were in Otley, not in Queensbury. And some people's religious experience of Christ is a bit like that. You know you've made the journey because where you are now, but you can't for the life of you think much about what happened along the way. Let's look at this passage this morning, noting just a few things about it. First of all, I want you to notice that Nicodemus was a religious leader. He's a Pharisee. He's a member of the Jewish council. In other words, he is a devout religious man. He knows the prayers. He attends the worship. He's expected to, to perform and conform to a certain lifestyle. And it's to him rather than a pagan that Jesus says, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. You see, being already a religious person doesn't lessen the need for that challenge about that seminal Christian experience. In fact, it probably heightens the awareness of our need. Howard Miller, at the first uh, Lent course last uh, Thursday, talked about prevenient grace. And one of the things he asked the group there, and thank you, there were 50 of us there, praise the Lord, thank you very much all of you who came, Those of you who didn't, where were you? And what Howard did was he used various Bible passages to 
display or illustrate people who had responded to the gospel, who had got it, who received the word with gladness, who then went on to follow Jesus Christ and asked the question, was that the first time God had acted in their life? And in every instance that we looked at, we had to say, no, it probably wasn't. We, our little group, probably some of you hear this, this John, John, John was in our group, we were looking at Lydia. And we had to say, how is it that an Asian woman from Turkey in a Roman port like Philippi is already in a place of prayer on the Sabbath and when Paul comes along and preaches to her, it says, and she received the word gladly. In other words, if you like, in the Martin Atkins version of the Bible, she got it. Did she get it cold? Never having heard this before, never having any conception of God with a capital G. Well, no, of course not, because she was already a follower of God. That's why she was there on the Sabbath day. That's why she was saying her prayers. And I came to see, after many years of talking about that Friday stroke Saturday morning in West Yorkshire in 1972, I found myself several years afterwards saying, but you know, looking back, I remember Mr. Bell, who was my Sunday school teacher when I was nine. And I remember that occasion when, and it's almost as if you have to look back through an experience that you thought was the beginning of something and actually realized that it was the beginning of something but it wasn't the beginning of absolutely everything because our God who promises and who commands be born again is a God who's been working in our lives in all sorts of ways before that challenge comes or that word comes or that instruction comes So, I think God was working in Nicodemus' life too. He comes in the dark. Some Bible commentators have said that he comes in the dark for John to illustrate to us that he is in the dark spiritually. His spiritual life is dark and that's why he comes after dark. Maybe. More likely, he comes in sort of semi-secret. Uh, the day's activities of worship has done, he knows where Jesus is, and he comes basically to have a conversation with this teacher. It sounds a bit flattering, doesn't it, when you read this passage? But perhaps Nicodemus has been suffering as he's listened to Jesus teach, as he surely has, he refers to that, Perhaps Nicodemus is suffering from two very common symptoms. You might recognize them. I do. First of all, he comes after dark aware of his own sinfulness, his own inadequacies to be the kind of person in society that, that he is. And secondly, he might come even as a religious leader aware of the shallowness and the fragility of his own faith. Here I am. I'm a leading Jew, I'm in the Jewish council, I'm a, I'm a Pharisee, and I've been listening to this guy's teaching now for weeks. And of course, on a popular level, we just say, well, that's nonsense. But I'll, I'll just go talk to him. 
religious people aware of God also need to be born again. Or secondly, notice all the obscure questions. There's a kind of deliberate misunderstanding in this conversation. It happens quite often in the conversations with Jesus with people in John's Gospel. There's an element of it, for instance, in the woman at the well story. There's an element of it, for instance, uh, in the story of the woman caught in adultery. So Jesus says to this religious leader, you must be born again. And he immediately and almost deliberately, I mean, he's no mug, turns around and says, don't be stupid. How can a, how can a grown person enter his mother's womb and be born again? How ridiculous. It's likely deliberate because the Greek word that John uses here for born again means actually born from above, not born from within. In other words, Jesus, and he goes on to make this clear, is talking about a spiritual birth. And therefore what Nicodemus is doing is making it kind of absurdly human. It's a birth through the Holy Spirit coming from above, from God, not from a human woman in a physical way. How often, how often, people who know deep down that they must be born again live lives where effectively in different sorts of ways, we're constantly putting up the kind of obstructive questions, the obscurantist view on a something, just in order that this thing does not become as direct as it really is in front of us. Well, you don't mean that. Tell us, says the woman at the well, our ancestors told us that this, that this well was made by, by Jacob. You're, you're not more important than Jacob, are you? It's diversion tactics. How often people who need to hear the direct challenge find ways to dodge the issue. And we don't really know whether or not Nicodemus ever did. Thirdly, and moving on quickly, notice the importance of the word you in verse 7. <clears throat> you can look at it if you like. You must be born again. And what John does in the Greek text there is really, really quite subtle. Because it's the easiest thing in the world for us to read Jesus saying to Nicodemus, you must be born again, and think that what Jesus is doing is saying, you, Nicodemus, must be born again. Except that that's not what the Greek means. What it means is, you must be born again. Including you, Nicodemus. Or perhaps John is making the point in the text, you, 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 and all of you. Fourthly, this passage makes clear what being born again means. I mean, it's easy to use the phrase. 
it's been used and sometimes abused by evangelists down the, down the ages. And there's therefore deliberately no attempt for manipulation or emotionalism on my part this morning. But what does it mean to be born again? Well, Jesus tells us, he goes on in the latter part of that passage from John chapter four, or 3 to say, it's those who believe in the Son of Man, who he is, and crucially certain things about him. Jesus says, and I, if I am lifted up. And the word that's used in the Greek for lifted up is also used in two quite complementary but separate ways. First of all, it, it's clearly an illusion. When I am lifted up on the cross, on the day we will call the first Good Friday, when I am lifted up, then through that death and through its efficacious nature, through the wiping away of the sins of the world, I will draw all people to myself. But it also means that in the lives of those people in whom Jesus is lifted up, he will be made visible, he will be known. And therefore the word itself equally means exalted, honored, served. And in our lives enthrone him, we sing in the servant king. Fifthly, and we get in there, God's saving love in Christ is for all people. God so loved a few people whose birthday was in June, and particularly the people who were born in the 1950s. He likes those. God so loved the people in the rich West. Look, you can tell they're blessed because they've got so much. God so loves people who are whatever. We could just r rattle through a list. Whatever color, whatever nationality, whatever creed, whatever sexuality, whatever gender. And all we'd be doing is trying hard to find the get-out clause. The people who don't fall inside. The absolute inclusion of what's meant when John writes, God so loved the world. Because the word used there is the word from which we get the word ultimately ecumenical or cumene. The whole inhabited earth, every living thing. Must finish. There's a first time, but not necessarily a last time to be born again. I've told you before, one of those things that really drives me nuts. It's not driven me nuts much here, but it drove me nuts when I was at Cliff. Of having testimonies, and we're going to have some, I think, next week emerging from the, uh, from the Fun and Fellowship weekend. But the thing that drives me nuts is those testimonies of people my age and older who stand up and say, I met the Lord in September 1958 and I've never been the same since. 
and you say, well, when was the last time that this became real to you? I've told you, November 1958. I know Christians that if November 1958 comes round again, they'll be ready. But I guess the question is, what does it mean to be a being born again person in March 2000? Even if it started for the first time in November 1958, you get the point. One of my friends, Bob Tuttle, <clears throat> says, I'm being converted every day. And the word that we use for conversion is the one that we very often allude to when we say be born again. Because ultimately, all conversions are gradual. They might start with a bang, or they might start as the point of recognition of a long process, like coming home in the car and falling asleep. But what's actually equally, if not more important, is that from that bang or that recognition point, your being born againness just keeps working itself out. It's not something that you look back to and say, it's fine. Do you know, I'm going to heaven when I die. I can basically do what I want now. Job's done. I said to Jesus, I will follow you in November 1958. Do you know, I've done all sorts of stuff since then. But it's all right. Because in November 1958, I said that. And suddenly we become Nicodemus. With all the background of belongingness in the church. And then somebody or some time or some event brings us up sharp again and says, what's happened to being born again? So, have you been born again? Do you know deep down that you're not born again as much as you'd like to be, but you know you should be? Are you still in a phase at the moment of avoiding things with distractions or obfuscations? Do you know that you've done that, but now at this time, your being born againness doesn't really amount to very much? Do you know that at any point in time, when there's a flicker of, Lord, I want to return to you and exalt you and glorify you and follow you, you'll never be turned away? Do you know that you can become alive in Christ? even today, even by the time we finish singing this last hymn, even through prayer this morning. How this morning, among a group of people who are actually many of us nearer Nicodemus than we are sinners in the classic sense of the word, hear the word of Jesus saying, you must be born again. And then providing the mechanism, the way, the means, the spiritual power to do that. Amen.